Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. Today, we have two interviews for you addressing the news this week that Texas has banned abortions in almost every case uh, at the state level against the federal law, the constitutional law of Roe v. Wade. Uh, Earlier this week, the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision declined to address this illegal, frankly, uh, state uh, ruling and it's going to affect uh, women all over the state of Texas. It already has. And everybody's wondering what is going to happen from here. This is a state of, uh, of crisis, frankly, for women's uh, choice in America. And so we have Amy Hagstrom Miller of the Whole Woman's Health Network of Abortion Clinics, uh, four of which are located in Texas. And we have Wendy Davis, a former state senator, uh, nominee for uh, governor of Texas a few years back, and now the head of Deeds Not Words, which is an activist nonprofit for uh, gender equity, and who has also been on the front line of uh, the abortion fight in the last many years. So we're going to go directly into these interviews, first with Amy Hagstrom Miller and then with Wendy Davis. This is an important time for us to educate ourselves about what is happening and what the Republican Party is attempting to do, not only in Texas, but in all these other states, Mississippi, Florida, and the rest. So let's go to it right now. Amy Hagstrom Miller, welcome to Inside the Hive. Thank you. It has been uh, an insane 24 hours. Uh, We are recording today on Thursday, and it has just been a day of people's head spinning, trying to wrap their minds around what has actually happened here. And uh, everybody's been reading the news, and there are aspects of it that we can understand. They passed a Senate bill in Texas that basically bans abortion, Um, you know, or at least 90% of it. Uh, you are no longer able to have one after six weeks or around that time. And uh, and as as we know, a lot of people don't even know that they're pregnant within that time. And uh, so here we are. And I mean, one of the questions I've been trying to figure out is Republicans have been trying to put limitations or ban abortion for decades. And suddenly they figured out some kind of workaround here. And um, can you tell us what it is they did here? What people I've, I keep reading about this shadow docket, which is something I just don't even understand. And I'm trying to figure out how is it that they just passed a law? And I guess they were they just depending on the fact that they thought the Supreme Court, you know, politicized as it is, would, you know, punt on it and then they'd be left getting to rule on it. Essentially, what, what happened? 
Sure. So um, thank you for having me. And, you know, it, it, to answer that question, um, who knows how far back I should go. So uh, in 2016, folks may remember Whole Woman's Health won a landmark Supreme Court case, um, Whole Woman's Health v. said, where we had challenged and sued the state of Texas over a, a different set of regulations called HB2. And um, it was regulations requiring hospital admitting privileges and, you know, um, hallway widths and physical plant restrictions, et cetera. And in that lawsuit, we really were able to illustrate what an undue burden regulations have on people's ability to access safe abortion services and that these uh, regulations apply um, disproportionately to people who live in rural communities, young people, people of color. And in the ruling, uh, one of the things that uh, was really the most poignant was that Justice Breyer in the majority decision said that um, a state can't insert itself between uh, a pregnant woman and their right to choose abortion and just pretend that they have women's health and safety in mind without supporting their claims of health and safety with medical evidence and scientific fact. That was a huge win. You know, for the decades prior to that win, um, all of the sort of regulation around abortion was couched under this idea that the anti-abortion movement somehow cared about women's health and safety. We were able to really knock down that framework. And since that time frame, literally like five days after we won, you saw the anti-abortion movement start to introduce bills that completely ignored the pregnant person and focused on the fetus. So you see a strategy of regulating, um, you see uh, bans on certain methods of performing procedures like the DNA ban, you see meth, uh, reason bans, so bans on people's reasons for having abortion, and then you see 15-week ban in Mississippi, six-week bans introduced in 12 different states, right? So there's this strategy to pivot towards the fetus and to pivot away from the pregnant person, um, and this is this bill, SB8, falls under that strategy. During this time frame, also, you had President Trump elected and you had a real sort of promise to the far right Christian folks that um, he would appoint judges that were anti-abortion. Right. And so that happened um, to a, an extent I don't think anybody could have predicted. So these two things have come together. Right. So now we mm -hmm. have a Supreme Court that's completely different than the Supreme Court I won in front of in 2016. And we have a whole bunch of judges appointed by Trump in the district court, in the circuit court and in the Supreme Court. And so we have a Texas legislature that's been Republican dominant for ages now um, that introduced it, you know, it tried to introduce some of the most restrictive bills they could come up with. And SB8, um, the six week ban on abortion is the most restrictive um, abortion restriction I have seen in my career. And um, it sailed through the House, it sailed through the Senate. Governor Abbott was, you know, over the moon about signing it. And um, now it, it, you know, we challenged it, tried to get it blocked in an injunction. And here we are. Um, having had it go into effect. Um, and, you know, now operationally, it is the, the um, biggest restriction on abortion since Roe. Um, yeah. So it gives you a little bit of the background of kind of where it, where it came from and how it fits into their strategy. Yeah. And well, for you, as somebody who's probably been at the forefront of this, you operate clinics around Texas and other states, um, you know, your life's work and your livelihood is 
has been at the front lines of this all along. A lot of people were shocked when they saw this ruling come late last night. Mm -hmm. Was this already on the horizon for you? You must have seen a lot of the chips falling here. Um, yeah. was, were you shocked last night or were you less shocked? You know, there's been a lot. I mean, in my whole career, uh, you know, in the last few decades that I've been working in abortion care, um, you know, people have said, Roe is falling, Roe is falling. In a kind of chicken little sort of way on many levels. Mm -hmm. um, but as we have moved into the changing of the Supreme Court and the, the, you know, the legacy of the Trump administration, there has begun to be much more formalized what folks call a post-Roe strategy, where more and more with the restrictions we've seen in the Midwest and the South, where I purposely focus the work of Whole Woman's Health and Whole Woman's Health Alliance, because those states have the most restrictions, the most barriers for people, uh, we've seen almost two different Americas emerging depending upon where people live. And so keep in mind, the actual abortion procedure or medication abortion is the same, no matter where you have that, right? The, the, mm -hmm. the safety indications, the, the experience of people, um, the medical procedure is the same, but how somebody accesses that abortion is night and day, depending upon where they live in this country, how many barriers they have, if they can use their insurance or Medicaid, if they have to take three or four days of a waiting period, a forced ultrasound, et cetera, or if they can get medication abortion via telemedicine sent to them in the mail. I mean, these extremes exist in this country. And so we've seen that um, more and more. And, and as we look at this, we, we say, hey, it's not too far in the future where um, if Roe is, you know, chipped away at, at we're only going to be able to count on access to abortion in the states where Roe is codified or where access to abortion existed pre-Roe. And so there's actually a different map you can't see in my office that actually indicates sort of what states do we know are going to be okay, what states are kind of waffling, and what states are in trouble. And we've really been planning out, you know, kind of a network of how will people get access to abortion if some of these states fall. So I think this six-week ban in Texas being enforced and going into effect happened much more quickly than anybody expected. You know, folks thought it might happen from the Mississippi case that's pending in the Supreme Court. Um, but it is things that we have been talking about for a few years in the field of service provision. Granted, I, you know, I work in the sort of larger pro-choice movement, but really my lane is in direct abortion care services and how can we help people get access to that care in the community where they where they live and, and you know, affordably and compassionately. Um, and it's a little more removed from that sort of legislative um, policy work, right? But of course, the, they're very related. <laughs> right. You you have people, you know, employees on the in offices today with patients or people who've come in. They they are suddenly find themselves caught in the in the slipstream here. And um, yeah. Tell me just what the report is from the people that work for you about what they're seeing and what they're feeling, frankly. I mean, like, you know, there's, there's got to be people who are just in a terrible bind here, yeah. in a panic. There is uh, a tremendous amount of anguish and heartbreak. Um, our staff are highly trained, compassionate, you know, dedicated human rights workers. And, you know, two days ago, they could help whoever came in the door and now not only can they not have to help them, they have to turn them away. Also, our staff are being put in this position of being almost agents of the state, right? The staff are compelled to tell people about a law and then enforce the law that goes against everything they believe. And so 
the staff are hearing the stories of people's lives and um, their desperation. Uh, and, you know, the politicians who passed this law aren't hearing that. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we know that access to safe abortion makes communities healthier. Um, it makes, you know, autonomy and equality are rooted in people's ability to control um, their reproductive lives. And so our staff, um, you know, they're in tears, they're, they're almost speechless, they're sort of frozen, they're worried, you know, they've shared all these different emotions today as, you know, one, they have a lot less patients in the building, um, and which is sort of spooky, um, and then the people who have come into the building um, for ultrasounds and to hope that they can get an abortion, um, you know, we're, we're having to send away more people than we're able to see. Um, and so that's been um, really difficult. Yeah. It's been said, you read about it, that this law and the restrictions on abortions are going to disproportionately affect people of color, the poor, mm -hmm. people who get often get... Uh, you know, who already have economic and voting restrictions set against them. Right. Uh, and who often don't have access to, you know, healthcare generally. Um, you know, uh, tell me about your experience with that. And, you know, what, what does that mean? What, give me an example of what, you know, give us be sort of a human feel for what that is going to mean sure. for, for people. So every time a restriction on abortion is, you know, passed and enforced, a group of people just no longer are able to access abortion, whether it's a two-visit requirement or it's a ban on using your insurance or Medicaid or whether it's um, a forced ultrasound or whatever may come into play, there's folks who have to, you know, get time off work, arrange childcare, travel farther, um, and each time you lose more and more people who, who get access to abortion. So you have abortion still legal on paper, right? But people's actual ability um, to get an abortion is, is you know, meaningless. Um, mm -hmm. And so we see that affecting folks disproportionately. Um, when House Bill 2 was passed uh, in 2013, it shuttered, you know, more than half of the clinics in the state of Texas. And the clinics that closed were the clinics in rural communities and smaller towns. Our clinic in McAllen is the really the only clinic open outside of the big metropolitan areas in the Twin City, in, 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 in Houston, uh, San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth. And so we will have situations where, you know, I've had a patient who drove all the way from Lubbock, Texas to Fort Worth, Texas, um, and had to bring her three children with her because she had to come for two days in a row because there's a two visit requirement. She was a waitress. And so she paid for her abortion in all fives and ones because uh, they were tip, you know, tip money. And they basically stayed in their car. Uh, in the parking lot overnight. Um, and this is the kind of multiple barriers that people are dealing with. Um, mm -hmm. Almost 70% of our patients who have abortions are parents already. I think that kind of goes against a lot of people's assumptions about who has abortions. Um, people have abortions because they know exactly what will happen if they don't end their pregnancy. They're, they're navigating parenting and working and, um, you know, trying mm -hmm. to pay their bills already. And so we see folks in our McAllen clinic. Um, there's a lot of immigration issues that are sort of overlapped with access to health care in general, uh, preventative health care in general, which 
um, has, you know, rough maternal um, mortality outcomes as well as access to abortion services. Um, these folks are policed in multiple ways and so um, can't always get the, you know, contraception they want or the access to preventative care that they want. And then when they need to access an abortion, um, you know, Whole Woman's Health of McAllen is the only clinic in the state of Texas south of San Antonio. And if you know anything about geography, that's, you know, 300 miles in any direction. Um, and so people have to travel to us. Um, and um, there's, you know, multiple sort of barriers like that. Um, the, anti, yeah. the anti-abortion protesters like to prey on our Spanish-speaking patients in McAllen. Um, our staff is fully Latina. Everybody speaks bilingual. But the protesters outside try to tell people like, oh, you need an ultrasound. You have to go to this other building to get your ultrasound. And, you know, the patient kind of says, oh, I remember them telling me about an ultrasound. Right. Um, and they may not be um, literate in English, but they're they're speaking you know, Spanish is, is, is beautiful, but then all of a sudden, next thing you know, they've gotten sort of detained by the anti-abortion people in a crisis pregnancy center down the street. They keep them long enough so they miss their appointments. And, you know, I could go on and on, right? Multiple yeah. levels of just preying on people's um, disparities. They're already economically vulnerable. Right. You know, it's, they have to get off work and manage school and kids just to make a trip like that. And when I, you know, that's just what makes it even more kind of alarming and just incredibly pernicious, this whole idea of uh, kind of empowering and weaponizing the anti-abortion people mm -hmm. with this, you know, with this bounties hunters, right. As, right. as Justice Kagan called it. Tell me a little bit about what it is they're saying can happen now. I mean, it's, it's really disgusting. I mean, it's sort of like we're going to uh, allow citizens to police this and right. actually give them an economic incentive to do it, right? Well, and I think that's the piece back to your you know, question you asked me quite a while ago. This is why this law worked as opposed to the 12 other six-week bans on abortion that have been blocked by the courts prior to this. It's because of this sort of public citizenry vigilante scheme where this law, the government's not put it in charge of enforcement public, private citizens, whoever gets to bring lawsuits against, um, you know, anybody who provides an abortion, anybody who was, helps somebody seek an abortion. And so it makes it a little bit of a moving target to figure out how to block it from going into effect. And, you know, even the majority decision um, uh, from this anti-abortion conservative court conceded that the decision isn't actually on the merits of a, of a six-week ban. Right. They just right. kicked the case out because of a technicality, because of this enforcement scheme. And so what it does is it invites um, anti-abortion folks who are already super hostile, super out to get people, um, you know, so discriminatory and cruel um, in their tactics already. Now it gives them this whole tool chest of the law to be able to make threats against people and bring lawsuits against people without any merit. Like they don't have to actually prove that something happened. Right. They can just accuse you of it. And then, uh, you know, front front office workers or nurses or medical assistants are put in this position of defending against the accusation. And, and these people aren't people who are have lawyers and who can afford, you know, tons of legal bills and who can travel no. to some random county in Texas where these anti-abortion people may have chosen to file this suit. And, um, you know, there's a bounty, a reward 
um, for the anti-abortion folks. Um, and it's $10,000 minimum is the reward. And so it's almost like a Mad Max movie plot or something. I mean, you know, like when I say it, I can see people being like, no, that can't be true. Right. Yes. And this happened in 2021 on our watch. Yeah. No, it's, it's hideous. And and in conjunction with the kind of like um, loosening of the gun control in, in Texas, the, there's already, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, Latina, you know, workers in your clinics, but also uh, people seeking it. Yes. Um, it. It kind of creates already the racial divide only can be deepened there. Right. And then on top of that, look what just happened under the Trump administration. You have these um, people out there who, you know, are want to fly flags and drive trucks and menace people on highways yeah. or get into yeah. confrontations with people. And they're going to be politicized even further and, and given more another tool in their toolbox in order to harass people, right? Right. And it just creates a frightening scenario. And it's for it's it's um it's alarming on multiple levels. And you know the obviously the next level of it is that uh it's created a blueprint for other states and there's already people yeah. in Florida talking about, yeah. well, let's, let's go, you know? You know, I think it's important that the, the connectivity in that web that you just wove is, is important to point out and, and highlight. Cause I think traditionally people think of anti-abortion protesters as like the lone wolf sort of mentality, you know, like the person who murdered Dr. Tiller in Kansas at first, they tried to say, Oh, this is a lone wolf where actually it's not. There's like a web of people who are Mm -hmm. strategically working on things together. And, um, you know, we have experienced domestic terrorism for decades as abortion providers. And so what we Mm -hmm. saw in the insurrection in, uh, you know, on January 6th in DC, like our protesters were there, like we saw them, they're the same people, right? They wow. are, you know, anti-women, anti-black, anti a whole lot of things. And it's not just yeah. one single issue. It's a whole mentality mm-hmm. and a philosophy that mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, if anything could come to light is the connectivity between, um, you know, all of the movements that really need to stand up and, and, and resist this kind of control and this kind of power. And it's not lost on me that these Texans um, who passed this law, these politicians, are trying to restrict voting rights at the same time because yeah. the, this law doesn't represent the feelings and beliefs of the majority of people in Texas. And I think sometimes progressives from other parts of the country like to say, oh, Texas should secede. They're so radical over there. You know, Texas is populated with people just like people all over this country. And um, there is something we need to pay attention to here because these folks have taken over power. They don't represent the majority. They are blocking people from voting them out of office. They're clinging to this gun rights and, you know, trying to get rid of abortion rights. And it's all connected. And so I think, of course, there's copycat bills. There there have been for a while, right? Like something that gets introduced in Texas, then all of a sudden you see it go to Mississippi, Ohio, Missouri, you know, Florida, um, Alabama, and um you know, that's part of a strategy that I think it's important for all of us to pay attention to and also know that, like, trying to get neighbors to spy on each other and, and report them to the authorities, that's about as un-Texan, <laughs> you yeah. know, as I can imagine, right? This that's is right. not this is not how Texas communities work or how people operate here in Texas. And so I think um, it's, it's important to point out, you know, this is actually... Yeah designed to break up communities and encourage surveillance and encourage 
you know, a vigilante system that's, that's pretty terrifying. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, as I am going to be discussing later with another guest that I have, Wendy Davis, who's been involved in you know gender equity in Texas as well. We talk about um, how, you know, nationally and at the state level in Texas as well, a minority, a powerful political minority who's gerrymandered their way into, Mm -hmm. you know, having outsized power over the majority. In this case, it's borne out in the polls about abortion and choice, um, are able to, you know, have more power than they really should. And and truthfully, it's like uh, they're doing it partly by empowering this kind of wackadoodle fringe who like uh act out on -hmm. social media and then we saw the insurrection and that's it adds a layer of terror to the whole thing so you know the thing that immediately popped out last night when the 5-4 decision came into the news is people were saying roe v wade is essentially for all intents and purposes dead that's a big statement that's a that is a big statement yeah, it's one we've been uh, scared to hear, mm-hmm. yeah, but we started to hear it uh, when Justice Ginsburg died. You know, tell us what what you think when you hear that. You know, it's funny you mentioned Wendy. I just had a conversation with Wendy Davis earlier today, and she was. We were both like, "Wait a minute, Roe v. Wade's still the law of the land, right?" Yeah. And I think we have to remember that. I mean, there's an impetus of like, why aren't we just defying this law? And why aren't we all just continuing to practice abortion like we did two days ago? And, you know, the sort of litigation and vigilante scheme is is why, right? It's it's super dangerous um, to, pe- to people to do so. But I think we have to remember that even this court didn't rule on the merits of a six-week ban. Everybody knows this is unconstitutional, right? right. And, and um, I mean, come on, justice... Chief Justice Roberts wrote a pro-choice dissent in favor of banning, you know, of blocking this bill. Like, I did not think I would see that in my time. Right. And so I think this does signal a lot of things to us about the nature of this court, about this, you know, uh, obsession with um, Roe v. Wade and abortion that these folks have. And I think um, the dissents um, were instructive about, you know, what we, what we could do next and what we should prepare for. But the fact, you know, about Roe or not about Roe, um, the vast majority of people in this country support access to safe abortion, upwards of almost 80%. um, And the vast majority, even in Texas, support access to safe abortion. And people know um, access to abortion is needed for healthy communities and healthy families. Um, And, you know, I think most people, if you personalize it and really think about um, if somebody I know and somebody I love needs an abortion, is this what I want them to go through? And when we put it in the personal, whether you yourself would ever make that choice is really actually irrelevant. Um, you know, do we have a country where, you know, women and people who are able to get pregnant can dream a future for themselves that's equal to everybody? And I think, 
you know, that equality and that liberty and that autonomy is, is a value that many people in this country share um, and that is not reflected by this court um, or by laws like this. Right. Well, we're going to find out, like, whether this is a politically advantageous for the GOP. I, I have my doubts, simply because when, you know, when you get down to the personal level, there are people from every socioeconomic and every political world who have confronted this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a moment where they may have to make this decision. And uh, you can't tell me that, you know, rich Republicans aren't making this decision in the undercover of their own right. private worlds, right, right. you know, however many times a year, all the time. And, you know, you would know privately probably having had some as people coming into your clinic, right? Right. Um, but it's now like, you know, the strategy over the recent years has been to hit this on the state level because, and but now they have a chance on the federal level. But what are you hearing in terms of, what are the best counter actions that you've heard so far? I mean, I just was reading something in Mother Jones or, I mean, it was the, the Nation moments ago about, you know, Joe Biden doing something on the federal level. Yeah. Um, putting abortion clinics under kind of like federal authority somehow to, uh, you know, circumvent, you know, state laws. I don't know, have any idea how that would work, but, mm-hmm. but what are you, what are you hearing and what, what sort of, um, you know, give us some hope here. Sure. So a few things I can tell you is one, I think we all need to start talking about the affirmative value of access to abortion and safe abortion in, in our communities. We need to talk about how people we know and love or even ourselves have benefited from access to abortion and make it personal, right? Because somebody, because my girlfriend had an abortion, because I had an abortion, I was able to do X and talk about how it added value to our lives. I think we need to have men talk about how access to abortion improved their lives and so that mm-hmm. it's not seen as an issue that only affects women. Um, it's not seen as, as an issue that's, you know, somehow easy to, you know, sort of throw out. I think shifting the rhetoric, shifting that shame and stigma framework to a framework of freedom and liberty and autonomy and, you know, an aspirational framework, I think um, it reminds me of how, you know, we used to talk about gay marriage or gay rights through, through a framework of rights, you know, gay people have the rights. And then when we shifted to a framework of love, um, and everybody deserves to have love. It, it brought more people in. It called more people into that, it, you know, to that language and let more people sort of welcome um, the idea of gay marriage. And I think um, abortion is oftentimes just framed as a tragedy or framed as a, a negative. And I think we need to um, talk about the positive value of abortion in our communities. I think the Women's Health Protection Act is an act that has been introduced a few times um, and has been, you know, gotten more and more people signed up. I I heard today that um, um, Nancy Pelosi is going to allow it to be introduced on the floor in in the House. I think that if we pass a bill like that on the federal level, it's going to knock all this junk out of the state level. And I think that just like a Voting Rights Act kind of um, legislation, I think it could really serve to do great positive affirmative justice at the federal level. And now is the right time. We have the majority in the House and the Senate and in the White House. um, And especially when it comes to this issue, there are some um, Republicans that do stand with us in the Senate. I think um, it's high time um, for that. And so I think um, some of those things could be done. Um, I I like the idea of the Department of Justice stepping in here. Um, we, We 
you know, envision like what would it look like if they gave us protection or if we had some kind of like COVID relief kind of scheme where, you know, our clinic disruptions could get some relief so that we wouldn't end up closing it so that if and when we knock this down, there's actually access um, still available to people. If we could help people travel out of state um, like you would in other kinds of disasters, what would it look like if we looked at this through that framework of public health, of, of human rights? Um, a lot of people in the world look through look at abortion through a human rights and justice framework. And I think um, it would benefit us to really start thinking of it like that um, and acting like that. Yeah. Well, this is definitely a five alarm moment in the history of yes. uh, women's choice. Yes. And um, uh, there's a lot of um, there are different kinds of um, organizations and uh, defense funds and different things that are activating right now. And I'm sure there's so much passion around it. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of money around it, too to kind of buttress and focus uh, some of the activism. Yes. And um, later on in the podcast, uh, Wendy Davis is going to talk about some of that. So um, thank you, uh, Amy, for coming on this podcast. Mm -hmm. This has been uh, very informative, and it's given me a lot more perspective on this, which I appreciate. And we're at such an urgent uh, moment. I'm glad that your voice is out there, and I'm sure you're growing hoarse from all the interviews you've been doing in the last... <laughs> Wow. But um, uh, I thank you for coming on the podcast and I hope you'll come back uh, at a later date to see where we're at and hopefully a better place. Thank you. And if, if folks want to participate, we'd love their support at Whole Women's Health. Um, you know, we're going to hopefully there's there's other legal uh, remedies and other things we're going to do next uh, up our sleeve. This isn't over yet. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Wendy Davis, welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm very grateful you're here today. Thank you, Joe. I'm grateful to be here. You've been advocating for women's equity, for women's choice for many years in Texas, both as an activist and a, and a political candidate and a, and a holding political office in the state. I just want to right off the top get your personal reaction you know, what was your reaction when this news came over the wire? I mean, last night, it was late last night that we learned uh, the 5-4 decision that the Supreme Court just made to basically punt on this abortion law in Texas and not deal with it and basically let it let it ride. So what was your personal reaction? Well, it was um, shocking and deeply, deeply disappointing. I, I woke up yesterday, of course, with the Supreme Court not yet having said anything. They'd been silent, and I at least was holding some bit of hope that they would do what has always been done, literally always been done, when a law in Texas or elsewhere is clearly in violation of Supreme Court precedent in Roe v. Wade, to enjoin the enforcement of that law until it can be fully litigated. And I had hoped that when we did hear from the Supreme Court, that would be the result. As you saw in that 5-4 split decision, John Roberts did join the three liberal justices arguing just that, that this should have been stayed. This law should not have been allowed to go into effect. 
unless and until it was fully litigated and determined to be in compliance with Roe v. Wade, which, of course, it clearly is not. Yeah. You know, Justice Roberts has become kind of like the swing vote in the court now. I mean, he was under the Bush administration considered the, you know, a conservative judge. And just to give you, you know, the sense of how things have shifted now with Kavanaugh and Bryant in there, it's really changed the equation. And we all, there were a lot of people that feared this when uh, Justice Bryant was nominated. But um, where I want to talk more deeply about this uh, in a moment. But for, before we get into the the ramifications of this abortion ban and and what people are saying and feeling in, in Texas about it, I want to step back for just a minute and give people a little bit of a sense of like uh, the context within which all this is happening. Governor Greg Abbott, a Texas legislator that is like hard right, who just recently uh, was threatening to like arrest Democratic members of of the legislature t- for refusing to vote on an, a, you know, on a voter restriction um, bill of some kind. I mean, Texas has always been a conservative state, but it's really taken on a new level of hard right politics in the Trump mold. Um, this abortion bill is sort of a part of a larger um, push across the board and on, on all fronts um, by the Republican Party in Texas. No, no question. And, you know, there are simultaneous strategies that Republicans here and in other states have employed, all of which are aimed at a singular goal. And that singular goal for them is to maintain power. Um, And so the two strategies they've employed for that, number one, are incredibly suppressive voter laws. Texas already had the most difficult voting laws in the country. We, we do um, tend to be first or second in terms of the lowest voting participation in the country. And it's not by accident, it's by design because it's been made so difficult to vote here. And now in this special session, despite the heroic efforts of our Democratic House caucus, who left the state um, and kept a quorum from occurring, ultimately they did return knowing that they could not stay away forever. And a dramatically worse voter suppression law was passed. So that's one strategy that they have. Let's keep the changing demographic of Texas from being able to exercise its power at the voting law, at the voting booth, rather than changing our policies to comply with what this newly growing majority would desire. And then their second strategy has been always directed at the furthest right primary voter. They believe, and, and I think this is with a, a bit too much confidence, they believe that they won't be held responsible in general elections and that the only threat to them is someone running at them from the right. And honestly, redistricting has created this monster because redistricting has created these very purely um, 
run Republican districts where Democratic votes just don't matter as much because of the way they're drawn and designed. And so the entire game becomes a Republican primary. And so they throw as much red meat as they possibly can. And in a single special session alone, Texas not only has now um, advanced and the governor signed into law the most restrictive abortion ban in the country, banning abortion at six weeks before 85 to 90 percent of women even know that they are pregnant. They've also, of course, forced a, a an essential rewriting of Texas history, not allowing our our, our Texas school children to learn about the history of race relations and gender relations and discriminations in our state's history. Um, they've put our transgender kids under attack and they've allowed literally any Tom, Dick or Harry who wants to carry a handgun in Texas and shoot up whoever the hell they want to, um, mm -hmm. licensed to do that by removing any requirement that they get licensed or show any qualification to be able to carry a weapon in our state. That all happened in a single special session, which is a 30-day special session. Um, and it happened because Greg Abbott has aims of one day running for president. And it also happened because he's looking over his shoulder to make sure that he will be reelected as governor um, in, in 2022. Yeah, and, and it's uh, frightening to imagine anybody running to the right of him. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. You know, let me ask you this. I mean, Texas, in, in all the ways you're describing, reflects kind of the larger Republican Party strategy, which is to have a, you know, redistrict to the point where a minority can stay in power. I mean, because right. I, I don't think, and you can tell me what you think from the Texas point of view, that uh, the majority of Texas voters are anti-choice. I, I, would, I would be surprised. That's so correct. tell me, you know, uh, I'm thinking, you know, this isn't just Democrats who are up in arms about this. I mean, there's women of every political stripe who are going to be unhappy to not be able to access, you know, healthcare like this and have some, you know, determination over their destiny. We we can hope. I, I agree with you. There was a poll recently um, where 70% of Texans 
evidenced their disagreement with changing existing abortion protections in our state, 70%. Here's the issue, though. There are those of us who vote, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, with our uteruses um, Mm -hmm. and with the uteruses of our sisters in mind, right? But there are those of us who, even though we are upset by this, don't put it at the top of our list in terms of how we prioritize who we vote for. Unfortunately, too often, people prioritize their partisanship over the very issues that will impact them and that are indeed hurting them. And let's face it, even laws like this one tend to disproportionately impact a certain portion of our population here in Texas and elsewhere. Women of privilege will get on a plane and go get an abortion in Colorado or California or New York or wherever they can find a friendlier climate. They will do that for their daughters and for other people that they love who need this kind of medical care. It's the women who can't afford to do that. Lower income women, um, predominantly impacting women of color who are going to bear the brunt of this kind of law. And unfortunately, I once sat in this position of poverty where voting was actually the furthest thing from my mind because I was too busy working two jobs and trying to go to school and survive. Um, we just have to make sure that we help that group of, of women and the men who love and care about them to understand that they can change this. They do have the power and we need to make it as easy as possible as we can to register them to vote, to educate them about voting and to turn that vote out so that they can take control of what's happening in this state. Right. When I think about this population you're talking about that will be disproportionately impacted, those are the very people they don't want to vote. And the the Republican Party is trying to restrict their access to, you know, mail-in voting or whatever, what have you, you know, make it as kind of difficult as possible. And and this is sort of the one-two punch that these guys are are performing here. Um, Well, let's talk about that a minute. I mean, this is such a personal subject, abortion, you know, you know, my wife was just beside herself last night looking at this, just outraged. (laughs) Her first suggestion was that uh, Texas women should cease having sex with Texas men until this law is changed. (laughs) Um, So, uh, but you, you know, have a personal story that you've written about, um, you know, being a teenage mother yourself, coming up in poor circumstances and having to struggle. And you know, as well as anyone, that destinies can be changed and rearranged by the ability to have a child or not have a child. Um, you've, you yourself have written about having had abortions that under kind of tragic circumstances. And I don't know what the effect of this, of the current abortion bills are towards people with medical, who have abortions for medical yeah. reasons, but... But maybe you can just tell me a little bit about your personal history with sure. um, with this subject, because I know it's personal to you. Sure. Well, first, I want to start by just talking about, you know, the fact that healthcare and 
our access to healthcare is deeply private. We, of course, developed the HIPAA laws around this idea, right, that our access to and decisions about healthcare should be private. And I saw this great graph that someone posted in my Twitter feed yesterday, and it was broken up by color and percentages, like 30%, 20%, 40%, 70%. And it said something like, you know, reasons why women have abortions or need access to abortions. And every one of the pieces of the pie chart said, none of your business, none of your business, none of your business. Mm -hmm. And that's right. But I also feel very strongly that in order for us to protect women's access to abortion in the future, if we feel comfortable sharing our stories, it's important that we do it because destigmatizing abortion is one of the most important things that we can do. And let's face it, the number of reasons women have abortions are as unique as the number of women in the world. My own situation was one that was built on, on a you know, tragic circumstance, and it was heart-wrenching. And, and I want to be clear that not every person who chooses to have an abortion is going through a heart-wrenching, tragic experience. They, they are doing it because they are choosing it for their own reasons, which they have every right to choose. For me, um, I had a, a fallopian tube pregnancy, an ectopic pregnancy, which, of course, if it's allowed to go to term, will threaten the life. It will um, actually create um, dramatic harm and probably death to a woman if her tube ruptures and that pregnancy goes forward. Um, it's not the case in Texas anymore that ending an ectopic pregnancy is considered an abortion. But when I had it years ago, it was. Um, and so technically, under the law of the state at the time, that was an abortion. But much more tragic for me was in another very much desired pregnancy and much further along in my pregnancy, a fatal fetal abnormality was discovered. And I cannot imagine, Joe, um, because I spent so much time heartache, prayer, conversation with my family, my doctor, my God, uh, making this decision out of love for this possible future child who would either die at childbirth or live a life of extended insufferable pain, um, I made a decision to have an abortion. And I cannot imagine that a lawmaker makes that decision for me. How, how dare they even consider standing in my shoes and in any woman's shoes, regardless, again, of the reason that she has personally chosen to have an abortion? Yeah. I mean, that's um, when I was reading about this before you came on, I was just it's horrible, and but it's exactly the kind of heartbreaking decision that you can't imagine, you know, 
people in the state house in Austin having anything to do with, right? And and let let me just add this real quick, Joe, um, because I think you asked this as part of your question, and I didn't answer it. This particular law does not allow exceptions. Um, there mm. isn't a prescribed exception for fetal abnormality, fatal fetal abnormality. There's no prescribed exception for uh, the pregnancy being the result of rape or incest. Um, and it doesn't specifically prescribe protecting the life of a mother. Um, so it is so extreme um, mm. that it's important for us to get the word out that not only does this end access to abortion at six weeks in our state, but it also ends it for everyone. There mm. will be no exception in this law. So, you know, you, you ran for governor in 2015. Is that right? 14. Yeah. In 2014. Right. So you went around the state and you talked to people in all kinds of districts, I imagine, and, you know, met people from the other side of the political spectrum, from all political spectrums. And I'm sure you've been, you had a lot of conversations about this subject, you know, with women of all kinds in the state of Texas. What, a lot of people are against abortion on religious grounds, but the exceptions you're talking about and, you know, rape, incest, you know, these kinds of things. I mean, are, are people completely irrational about this among the women that you talk to and you know, as you got to know people in the state? What is the conversation around abortion, you know, like, let's just say, in in the center or in the center right or even in the hard right? I mean, some of it's like, if they're Catholic, they might have really strong views. But are people this irrational about it? Or is there, do you think that people out there understand that in some cases, people need to make personal decisions? I mean, what what's your sense of how the electorate feels on this issue in Texas? Well, polling tells us one thing about that. And my personal experiences affirm it. In, in our polling in Texas, more than 50% of our community believes that a woman should be able to make this decision and that Roe v. Wade uh, should be upheld with no qualifications added to it. There are some people who have varying degrees of support for abortion, people who would support, for example, a decision like the one that I made or a decision that would protect someone's right to access abortion in the instance of rape and incest. And when you add all of those together, it's a supermajority of citizens who believe at least in some form of protection. The question is, will people vote with this issue? Mm -hmm. um, you know, will, will they vote out of concern for what the future might be for their daughters and their granddaughters, as I think about now with two little granddaughters myself, and will they make this a priority that motivates them maybe to break out of a partisan voting pattern that they've had for many years? And, you know, we've seen this happen on other issues. We've seen it happen 
on health care, for example, where people broke with partisanship. We certainly saw it with people's upset over the, the agenda and kind of the call to racial bias that the Trump administration um, encompassed and people broke with their partisanship to vote uh, for Joe Biden. So there are certainly instances where that happens. And I hope that we can talk enough about this and help people understand it deeply enough that this will be one of those moments as well. Yeah. I, I just was talking on Twitter this morning about this, and it was a little bit controversial, but I do think this is a loser for the GOP. I mean, I think it's like when you're talking about people's teenage daughters being like who got yeah. into an instance where they're pregnant and they're going to be chased around by like bounty hunters looking to make $10,000 on a lawsuit or something. You know, this right. is ridiculous. And when you, you know, if you're talking about candidates uh, who are Trumpified and aligning themselves with the insurrection, aligning themselves with voter restrictions, aligning themselves with, uh, you know, the big lie on and on. And then on top of that, they want to enable, you know, these rogue, uh, you know, we've already seen people in Texas chasing people down the road on highways and trucks with flags on them. We want I those people. Oh, you were? Oh, my God. Well, see, you know from firsthand experience, there are nuts out there and you're going to deputize them to become like, you know, anti-abortion vigilantes. It's terrifying. I don't think any suburban mother, if whether they're a Republican or libertarian or, you know, whatever, are going to, you know, so it's up to the Democrats, really to make it clear in black and white what it is they're voting for. And I would be surprised if a guy like Ted Cruz or these other or the Texas Republicans are waved the flag of this particular law as a victory. I mean, I would be personally surprised. It will be interesting to see, you know, and I, I think a lot rests on the shoulders of people like me and others who are part of this world and this fight to communicate fully a broad understanding of exactly what this law does. Again, there may be people who think, you know, not everybody ought to be able to walk into an abortion clinic any day and have an abortion, but they do believe they ought to have it in certain circumstances. Um, and to help them understand the shocking breadth and depth of this law is really important. And, and that's why I'm so grateful that you had me on your podcast today. Well, you know, you're, you're probably getting a lot of calls in the last 24 hours from friends of yours in Texas and allies and so forth. I mean, I want to ask you a two-part question. What, what are you hearing from those people? And what are people saying and thinking and feeling? And, are the, and, and then what are you telling them about what they can do about it? You know, like what, what is the, or is there, I'm sure this is all sort of fresh and freshly shocking, but what's the strategy? How do you, how do you go about um, countering this if you can counter it at all? Well, there, there are several things, you know, the, the first thing that happens, of course, is we all feel this upset and we, we struggle for how, how can I help? And I had so many people reaching out to me about that yesterday. And today I've spent all day um, really trying to put together some very concrete ways and effective ways to help. 
One of those, of course, is to donate to abortion funds. And, and what the abortion funds do, they help women who uh, need cost for abortion care and cost for transportation to access that abortion care outside the state of Texas. Um, and my Twitter feed yesterday, I put a link to a donation site where we can support simultaneously all of the abortion funds in Texas. I think there are nine of them. Um, the second thing that is really urgent right now is creating a legal aid fund, for lack of a better way to describe it, that will provide resources to indemnify our frontline workers, our healthcare providers mm -hmm. who may be and will be sued under this new law. Because not only are they exposed to the possibility of having to pay this $10,000 fine to the bounty hunter, you know, vigilante that you described, but they also, under the law, if they lose, will have to pay the attorney's fees of the successful, uh, you know, plaintiff who has sued them. And, and this creates tremendous exposure. And it's the reason that right now, our abortion care providers have decided, at least for the time being, to take a breath and to comply with this law until we can figure that piece out. My nonprofit, Deeds Not Words Action Fund, has created today a way to donate to that legal defense fund. And I would ask people to please visit our website and give what you can. If you remember a year and a half or so ago with the family separations um, that were so tragic and, and um, around America, people donated small amounts that literally accumulated millions and millions of dollars for the legal needs of, of the community that was suffering these family separations who were immigrants to, to our, our country. Um, this same type of legal defense fund needs to be mounted so that we can continue this care in Texas. And we can say um, out loud and proud, we are complying with the law of the land, which is Roe v. Wade. And we are not going to comply with this BS law that clearly violates the provisions of Roe v. Wade, regardless of whether the Supreme Court decided to immediately say that. Um, and we're going to protect our doctors and our volunteers and our abortion care funds and anyone else who's helping a woman access abortion. We're going to protect them from the costs of litigation that they might accrue as a consequence of doing right by the women in our state. And yeah. then finally, um, the House, of course, is taking up an act that was filed some time ago. Um, Congresswoman Judy Chu is the primary author. It's called the Women's Health Protection Act. And it would enshrine reproductive health care for all women across America um, to be codified in federal law. 
And I know Speaker Pelosi um, put out a press release today about her position on what happened in Texas. And she mentioned that as soon as the House reconvenes, this will be one of the most important and immediate topics that they take up and that they pass from the U.S. House. So we need you to call your uh, U.S. House member, your U.S. Senate member, and tell them that you support the Women's Health Protection Act and you expect their vote in favor of supporting it as well. That's all amazing. Great things to hear. And that, um, you know, protecting the actual people working in these facilities from legal recourse is a big is a big one. Um, yeah. But, it, you know, and you also talk about, you know, the some talk about trying to codify this in, in the federal level. You know, the Republicans have been working at the state level because they couldn't get any traction in the court, you know, Supreme Court up until now they're going to attempt to. But it's you know, what's happening in Texas is going to be replicated elsewhere. No it's question. a roadmap. Right. And so what happens in Texas is not going to stay in Texas. It is just the forefront of this state by state battle that they're going to wage. And so, you know, the eyes of the country are on Texas and the eyes of Democrats and the eyes of people on every side of this. And um, it is a uh, wrenching, complicated, infuriating turn of events, I will say. And, uh, you know, before I let you go, I just want to first thank you for coming on uh, to Inside the Hive to talk about this and giving us this report. This has been fantastic. There's a governor's race next year, 2022. It's uh, it seems like a long way off, but it's going to come around real fast. And um, obviously, this will be one of many uh, things on the on the agenda. What uh, are people saying and thinking and talking about looking ahead? I mean, I'm sure there is a lot of hunger in the state of Texas among Democrats to get rid of Abbott to uh, kind of change the equation. We've been talking about Texas turning for a long time, you know, in the national presidential elections. But, you know, the state level is where the real action is in terms of can you, you know, get in there? Um, Are you involved in thinking about that? And what are people talking about? I'm certainly part of the circle of of conversation about how we're going to put together the most successful ticket possible. And you are right that one of the most powerful things that we can do to impact issues like this is to exercise the power of our vote and to do it in spite of the voter suppression law that now exists in Texas and to spend you know, much of our waking energy is making sure that every person entitled to vote should be able to do so. And I will certainly be a part of that. And I hope that what people will think about next year when they vote on our statewide ticket and for our state House members and state senators, they will think about the fact that the Republican majority spent its time on issues like this. And rather than fixing our electric grid, which of course caused the deaths of Texans because of its failure during the winter freeze this past winter, rather than doing what we can to protect our communities from COVID, and in fact, doing just the opposite, 
with our governor, of course, enforcing an anti-mask ban. Um, a person who claims to stand behind the idea of the sanctity of life and yet who has put my grandchildren and other children at risk of COVID in their schools by mandating that um, their schools cannot require masks. I hope that all of these things cumulatively will be remembered, can be well communicated by Democrats, and that we have a field of Democratic candidates who are strong, passionate, hardworking, and willing to put themselves on the line to make the kind of change that we need in Texas. Yeah. Well, let me close with just a personal note. I'm from Texas, and uh, I love Texas. I have a lot of um, loved ones there, a lot of old friends, and not just in Austin, as uh, you know, people might presume I'm just <laughs> like Austin. It's a, a m- much more diverse and complicated state than it's made out to be in its politics. And um, I think that, you know, were the uh, lines redrawn in terms of the districting, if there was more uh, free, ac- you know, access to voting, easier access to voting, if there was mail-in voting, it would be a different story in Texas. And a lot of people know that. That's and right. um, that's where the battle is there. And um, I, uh, on, on the, on this situation with this abortion law, um, we're going to be watching so closely. And Wendy Davis, thank you for coming on Inside the Hive to uh, talk to us about it. Thank you, Joe. And thanks to all your listeners. That's our episode this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Amy Hackstrom Miller and Wendy Davis, for coming on. I'd like to thank our producer, Brett Fuchs, the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this podcast possible. And I'd like to thank our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more like it, please hit subscribe. Come back next week and the week after. We will see you next week. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.